Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the poet Elizabeth Alexander came to national attention in 2009 when she recited her poem, Praise Song for the Day, at President Barack Obama's first inauguration. Say it plain that many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton and the lettuce, built brick by brick the glittering edifices they would then keep clean and work inside of. Alexander's new book, The Trayvon Generation, is an expansion on an essay she wrote for The New Yorker in 2020. The work reflects on the ways black art, visual art, poetry, prose, and music speaks to and reckons with historical and present-day racism. It explores how the generation of black Americans who grew up in the last 25 years navigates that reality. It fathoms how they experience racial violence in general, and the killings of Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Elijah McLean, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and others in particular. It contemplates the legacy of trauma in a culture that in some respects still marginalizes the humanity of black people. Joined here by the poet Mahogany L. Brown, Alexandra talks about the artists who inspire her. She speaks to a new generation and to our responsibility as a people to come to grips with the past and guide and protect the path forward. Elizabeth Alexander is an acclaimed poet, memoirist, scholar, and the president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Her other works include The Light of the World, American Sublime, Crave Radiance, and The Black Interior. This virtual event was presented on April 4th by Books and Books, the Miami Book Fair, and independent bookstores around the country, including the Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle and Village Books in Bellingham. Christina Nosti of Books and Books introduced the program. Good evening, buenas noches, and thank you for tuning in. On behalf of all of us at the locally based, independently owned bookstore, Books and Books in Miami, Florida, and in partnership with Miami Book Fair and our indie bookstore partners, Anderson's in Chicago, Book Passage in San Francisco, Book People in Austin, Elliott Bay in Seattle, Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge, The King's English in Salt Lake City, Left Bank Books in St. Louis, Northshire in Manchester, Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C., Village Books in Bellingham, and Women and Children First in Chicago. I'm delighted to welcome you to a virtual evening with Elizabeth Alexander to celebrate the publication of The Trayvon Generation, a galvanizing meditation on the power of art and culture to illuminate America's unresolved problem with race, published by our friends at Grand Central Publishing. 
Elizabeth Alexander is a prize-winning and New York Times best-selling author, renowned American poet, educator, scholar, and cultural advocate. In conversation with Miss Alexander tonight, we're joined by Mahogany L. Brown, the executive director of Just Media, a media literacy initiative supporting the groundwork of criminal justice leaders and community members. Brown is the author of recent works, Vinyl Moon, Chlorine Sky, Woke, A Young Poet's Call to Justice, Woke Baby, and Black Girl Magic. And her latest project is a poetry collection responding to the impact of mass incarceration on women and children titled, I Remember Death by Its Proximity to What I Love. She is the first ever poet in residence at the Lincoln Center. Thank you for supporting independent bookstores. And now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guests to the virtual stage. Thank you, Christina. Hi, Dr. Elizabeth Alexander. Happy birthday. Thank you, Mahogany Brown. I'm so happy that we are here together to celebrate it. I feel very thankful to not only be able to hold this work um, really closely for the last couple of days and and really uh, dive in, um, but also I I feel so lucky to to, bear witness next to you and your genius. Uh, Would you open up our time together here with a couple of pieces before we jump into the Q&A? Absolutely. This is from the Trayvon generation. I call the young people who grew up in the past 25 years, the Trayvon generation. They always knew these stories. These stories of violence formed their worldview. These stories helped instruct young African-Americans about their embodiment and about their vulnerability. The stories were primers in fear and futility. The stories were the ground soil of their rage. The stories instructed them that anti-Black hatred and violence were never far. They watched these violations up close and on their cell phones so many times over. They watched them in near real time. They watched them crisscrossed and concentrated. They watched them on the school bus. They watched them under the covers at night. They watched them often outside of the presence of adults who loved them and were charged with keeping them safe in body and soul. This is the generation of my sons, now 23 and 22 years old and their friends who are also children to me, and the university students I have taught and mentored and loved. And this is also the generation of Darnella Frazier, the 17-year-old Minneapolis girl who came upon George Floyd's murder in progress while on an everyday run to the corner store with her little cousin on May 25th, filmed it on her phone and posted it to her Facebook page at 1.46 a.m., with the caption, they killed him right in front of Cup Foods over South on 38th and Chicago. Well, this is how we begin, friends. Thank you so much for for opening with with such um, heavy, impactful, and profound um, observations. Can you talk about how you did this kind of work um, how difficult the work can be, how heavy it can be, and still have so much room for like literary solve and hope. Well, one of the questions I'm asking is I think about how we love our young people 
And when I say our young people, I mean my people, people, your people, people, but I mean much more than that. I mean this generation of young people who I want all of society to love and embrace. Mm -hmm. I want all of society to understand, you know, what has been the primer, as I say, of their understanding of the proximity of anti-Black violence, the names they've grown up with, Mm -hmm. the stories they've grown up with. Yes, Trayvon Martin. Yes, Tamir Rice. We go on and on and on and on. Our children hunted. Our children who are, you know, children to us, uh, uh, upon whom we cast our loving eyes, seen as dangerous, seen as predators, in a way that I argue goes all the way back to the way that Black people were brought to these shores and classified as three-fifths human beings, not human. We haven't, as a society, come all the way out of that. So to your question, uh, I ask in the book, and and I just want to show the really beautiful cover. Um, This is Carrie Mae Weems' Blue Black Boy. What a title, Blue Black Boy. And look at this boy. Look at this black boy. Think about his blues. But it is a work of art that lets us sit with and think about and contemplate these young people, and that perhaps make some of these young people feel themselves seen. I have been a teacher for many years. It's not my job right now, but it's my lifetime job. And I've always taught African-American literature, culture, history, all of it. And I have always believed that in our poetry, that is where we remember, that is where we tell our history when our history is not otherwise recorded. That is how we say we were here. That is how we say this is how we got over and got through the tradition of our music, the tradition of our dance, the tradition of our visual art was something that I in particular wanted to get into in this book, which has visual art weaving through it, because I think that there are ways that our visual artists allow us to see and be arrested by the power of the image that does something that other art forms cannot. Mm-hmm. To understand the critical thinking that lets us understand that racism isn't one person at a time, but rather systemic. Yeah. Racism is not, uh, you know, so and so doesn't like you. Rather, racism is a system with history uh, that is, you know, larger than individuals. So if we're going to unravel it, we have to understand it as a system. Mm-hmm. And so the critical thinking that African American studies offers. I think is part of how we can understand our way through. So the book names the generation, names the issue, and then says, let's look at some of the art and poetry and history and critical thinking that can help us understand it. And let's listen to and look at some of the creativity that these young people have offered to us. Yes. Yes. Um, I love that. I love that carrying. I love that muscle that you're asking your reader to, uh, you know, strengthen. And you really, I, you honor, you honor the, the, the blood, sweat, tears of the social justice worker. You honor the blood, sweat, and tears of those not just lost and misremembered, because we have a lot of people uh, that have been lost to police brutality, but but now we're just kind of forgetting their names and just saying mm-hmm. their name. But like you don't you don't remember their personhood, and you do a brilliant job of humanizing them again by adding this layer of art 
Can you talk about why you chose the Kara Walker, Jennifer Packer, Lorna Simpson, Glenn Ligon? Can you talk about why you chose them? And, and what do what do you feel when you look at those pieces? Did it help you continue the writing? Did, did it supplement the writing? Did it steer you or pivot you any way? I would love to know. Well, these 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 folks who you've mentioned are some some of our very our very greatest artists today. And so I wanted to make a book that was a different kind of reading experience. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make a book. And, you know, as poets, there's a way that even when we do prose, we do it in our own little extra way. Mm-hmm. So these are relatively condensed chapters. And we also believe in the interregnum or the white space, you know, or the conversation. So I thought if we had works of art woven through, sometimes directly related to the thing that's being talked about in words, sometimes in a sort of counter relationship Hmm. to those words, I wanted people to read the images as they read the words, to stop and shift and then keep moving and then perhaps go back. Someone could look at the book and just look at the images and have that be a read. And then go back at it, look at it all together. You mentioned some of these artists, Brianna, uh, Brianna, Brianna, uh, Blessed Are Those Who Mourn is the painting by Jennifer Packer that comes very early in the book. It's an extraordinary paint painting for those uh, who might be in New York. It's up at the Whitney Museum in her extraordinary show right now. It's huge, wall-sized, predominantly yellow, but she's quite a, quite a colorist. And it was inspired, if you will, I mean, literally the breath taken from the murder of Breonna Taylor in her bed, in her home, but she wasn't going to replicate that. She wasn't going to paint that scene. Instead, she said, when I looked at the pictures of her apartment, I saw things that were familiar, an Mm -hmm. iron, a fan, a particular sofa, a particular kind of window. And so she said, that is how I identified with this other young black woman is by starting by painting a space that was familiar. I knew her through her space. That was my point of entry and empathy. The Kara Walker is a 60 foot long in real life, uh, a painting that is in the high museum of art in Atlanta. And why it is important that it's in the high museum is that it is, she grew up in Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain, which mm-hmm. is the largest bas-relief sculpture on earth and the largest and most significant monument to the Confederacy. Oh, A victorious monument to the Confederacy, built with Klan money, Klan celebrations, uh, venerating the lost cause of the Confederacy. And it is a place that many people, you, you know, school trips, picnics, recreation, people go. And in the words of the poet Adrian Sue that I use in the book, she talked about growing up in Atlanta and what she called the shock of delayed comprehension. Mm. When she realized that this place where she was recreating was the world's largest shrine to white supremacy. So here is Kara Walker making a work that talks back mm-hmm. to that, which I think is, is just really uh, very, very extraordinary. Lorna Simpson in an abstract blue piece explores, you know, there's a lot, even the book itself, the color blue signifying, of course, 
um, you know, the blues and that great tradition with which we, uh, you know, kind of make alchemize our sorrow and turn it into something that we can offer where we take what might be an individual sorrow song and turn that I into a we, Mm -hmm. right? You know, the, the blues runs through the book Mm -hmm. because I refuse to let black experience be atomized Mm -hmm. and not understood as something collective and not understood as something that we all own. So Lorna Simpson's blues, her abstract blues, take me there. Um, so those are those are just some. There are many, many more. I could I could parse and talk about all of them, but you can see the way that. Uh, but they're working with the text. I'm here for the masterclass. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, especially as a poet, right? We we kind of forget that there are ways to think about art outside of the art. And so I think you do a, a great job at, at giving us toeholds to walk through these different pieces. Um, and I love the Lorna Blue and and even the color, um, the cover art, because it reminds me of the chakras. Uh, so you have the the third chakra that's um, it's, it's in the hue of blue. And that's, I think, focused on the throat. And then you have the fourth mm-hmm. chakra, which is about the, the third eye, which is mm-hmm. blue. And I feel like you're, you're doing this beautiful oscillate, oscillating dance between the two, where you're constantly asking us to engage here, but then also to be mindful of what we're saying, what we're not saying, what we hear, you know, the, how, how the voice can move. And you even brought in not just these visuals, but the, the, the literary lineage, the, the pillars, Lucille Clifton, can you talk about bringing in the, your, your literary icons into this space? Well, yes, I wanted um, to have poems. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever made a book that doesn't have po- a prose book that doesn't have poetry in it somewhere. I mean, so, you know, those are the things I make, but those are also the things I study and share. Um, and uh, I turned to the great Lucille, who always, you know, Lucille, she talked about this loose light, her light, the light that she and her work shine on everything, uh, you know, illuminate, uh, illuminate I can and so illuminate I did, as, <laughs> as, as she wrote in one poem. Yeah. And, um, and so one of the ones that I include is, is a poem about a plantation in South Carolina, where she repeats the question. She's asking, who lies here? Who lies beneath this soil? She's asking a more profound question. What are the stories that are not told? Who are the names? Let me call the names of the enslaved people who lived and died here and who are probably, you know, literally beneath one's feet when one walks. And the poem ends, here lies, which again, we start, it's at the funeral, it's at the burial, you know, here lies, Joe Smith, here lies, and she's talking about the lies of the South, the lies of the Confederacy, the lies that would have us think that uh, the Confederacy was victorious and that white supremacy is an enduring ideology after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And here lies at the end of the poem. She's called up those names. She's mm-hmm. called up, uh, called up those souls. Mm-hmm. She's performed that act of conjuration. Mm-hmm. Gwendolyn Brooks so important to so many of us. And her poem, uh, The Boy Died in My Alley. The boy died in my alley without my having known, apparently died alone. Mm. And 
she talks about how our children have to belong to all of us. You know, it's, you can't say that's not my child. That's right. When a child is getting shot in the alley. That's right. And what she says that's even more profound is mother, father, sister, brother, he called out, we failed him. Mm. Mm. He's ours. How do we claim him? The boy died in my alley. Uh, Natasha Trethaway, her incredible poem, Southern History where she talks about Trethway, born in Mississippi in 1967. And she talks about being taught Gone with the Wind as a history book <laughs> when she was a child. Yes. But what's profound about it, not just that she was Wild. taught Gone with the Wind as a history book, but that as a small Black girl in that class, she felt shame that she didn't speak up against it. And and I use that poem to ask a question that's elsewhere in the book as well. You know, it starts off, the problem of the 21st century remains the color line. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean that the problem of race is with us still? But what does it mean that we keep looking to Black people to fix it when we didn't create it? Okay. Why does a little Black girl feel like what a teacher is teaching her is somehow her responsibility to correct. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I want us to, to, to think our way out of that place as well, which doesn't mean hands off. It just means let us disabuse, uh, you know, um, white people of the idea that this is not something that black people didn't create and therefore has to be dismantled. There have to be white hands yes. uh, doing the dismantling. Yes. We have some great comments. One just said, utterly exhausted daily. <laughs> it is not our job. Amen. I, I do want to say the amen is, is necessary because for a moment, I thought you was having a sermon. That was yeah. for me. I almost paid ties. That's absolutely correct. Um, so in here lies absolutely openings. It just mind-blowing uh, uh, and, and, and intriguing entry into the book. My, one of my favorite parts of that uh, Here Lies section, monuments and memorials ask what we remember, that we remember those who have died and make permanent what they stand for, individuals, communities, ideas. The word remember has a physicality to it, remember. The word remember, I can't see with these glasses, sorry, and the light, (laughs) the idea without remembrance, the corpus of the person or people or place or idea or ideology has been physically torn asunder. Maps are not neutral. Maps are not inherently true. Maps have points of views. Maps carry cultural biases. Maps tell stories. And and that literally is everything you were just talking about with uh, uh, this this uh, space that, that you didn't know was this, you know, white supremacist uh, uh, monument that we were all picnicking in front of and having, you know, cookouts and, and bringing your kids there. So that was a moment for me where I literally thought, oh, that's right. We are we are walking on on on, on muddied soil, but not muddy just by our blood, but by our, our memories by our memories. How did you go to these spaces and, and, and recreate this work um, so that we, one, we could read it, but two, how did you uh, reinforce and protect yourself while doing this work? 
Ooh, that's a, that's a great, uh, uh, I, I didn't think that's where you're going with the last <laughs> part of the question. So let me talk about the first part first, um, and, then, and then I'll get to the second part. Um, I think that history is a gift. History and culture are tremendous gifts because, you know, they enable us, again, to sort of understand how things are made, uh, you, you know, how we got to where we are. Uh, how certain patterns repeat themselves if you don't, uh, you know, take them apart at the root. Um, uh, and again, that, you know, we don't have to start from scratch in thinking about every uh, problem that comes before us. One, one section I really love of the book um, is in a chapter called Cemetery of the Illustrious Negro Dead, uh, which was a historical foray back into the great Zora Neale Hurston's letters. Now, of course, you know, we know their eyes were watching God, uh, probably no mules and men. Zora Neale Hurston, one of our great, as Alice Walker says, a genius of the South, one of our great, uh, great, great writers and thinkers uh, and anthropologists actually as well. Um, And she was absolutely brilliant in her letters. There's a great collection of her letters edited by Carla Kaplan that sent me to look at, at, at further ones. And she wrote to W.E.B. Du Bois in the 1940s, with a beautiful idea, she said, what if we were to build a place of eternal Negro rest, a mm. cemetery for the illustrious Negro dead? Mm. We get some beautiful land in Florida where, you know, there's a variety of plants, flora, fauna. We could get as much land as we wanted. And this would be where we would inter Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, this one. She said, John Brown can come in the cemetery for the illustrious Negro dead. She visions the whole thing, she said, because otherwise we will die unhonored and unremembered. Mm. So ironic because that is how Zora Neale Hurston passed at the end of her life. And it took years later, the writer Alice Walker to go back to where she was from and erect a marker. Zora Neale Hurston, genius of the South. So to me, understanding this historical timeline, understanding that the beautiful idea of how to memorialize as good as any idea I've seen today was something that Hurston put forth a long time ago. And that what she was enacting was this idea that I think Black folks have always understood. Again, you know, without full access to the mainstream, that doesn't mean we don't do our remembering. That means we don't make our we, that we don't make our own monuments. Of course we do. So I talk about New Haven, Connecticut, a city I know very well, a city I've lived in for many, many years and coming upon a scene familiar to us in so many of our communities. Mm-hmm. Traffic stopped because in front of a black church, hundreds of folks are spilling out. They're all wearing the same color of gold hoodie. And when you look at it, there's the face of a boy. Mm-hmm the boy who was killed. We see this in all of our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So his people were saying, this is our child. Yes. You know, this is our child. Something as small and important as memorials by the side of the road. So I talk a little bit about the memorial to Sandra Bland Mm -hmm. at the side of the road Mm -hmm. where she was violently pulled over. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I think it's important to say that in the face of attempts to disempower and erase, in the face of all this violence, we have always 
stood up and asserted ourselves. We have always created. Our poems outlive us. Our art outlives us. And so that's what I'm trying to bring forward now to the the second part of how did I protect myself? Um, that's a very deep question. And I think that goes to a space that you know well as, as well, you know, to mothering, to mm. mothering, mm. to black mothering. Mm. You know, yeah. there is a work um, by Elizabeth Catlett in here. Um, and I wish we could, um, if, you, if, you, if you look at it in the book, it's called The Torture of Mothers. I don't think we can put it up. But I can describe it very well. It is um, an Elizabeth Catlett bust, a head of a mm. black woman. And inside the head is a window just like this. And mm-hmm. in that window is a boy in a pool of blood. And when you look at this picture, to me, it's like the worry that never goes away. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody who loves somebody worries about them. Mm-hmm. But the added layer of worry that never goes away when you are responsible for a black child. Yes. Um, and how does one, you know, um, fortify oneself? Um, you know, I think, I think in community, I think with voice, um, but also I think you know, and, and, and there's uh, a section I, I would like to, to, to read this um, about, this wasn't what I was going to read, but I want to, it, it speaks to what you're asking. Okay. Um, Every black mother I know is exhausted in her own way. <laughs> I think every black mother must dream her fears about our children. I cannot write my dreams for fear they will come true if I speak them into form. Mm. One friend tells me of a dream she had where she was flying an old-fashioned twin plane with her teenage son. They were flying in tandem until she was suddenly ejected from the plane seat and fell, fell, fell to the ocean below. She looked up and saw her son continue to fly while the pieces of her side of the plane broke off. Wings, engine, body. He continued to fly the half plane, but she knew it could not support him. Her desperation was animal and wild. I pushed my body through the air to try to reach him, she tells me. And then the dream ended. Or black mothers are not dreaming because we are so exhausted that the dream space is without language or image, just darkness. If black children belong to us and we need not be mothers or fathers or even black for black children to belong to us, a part of us is always vigilant, and always exhausted. Always exhausted. That's a perfect a perfect way to to summarize honestly this 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 uh, art piece by Elizabeth Catlett. Uh, when I saw it, I thought of the thought bubble, right? It, it, yes, it, yes. As a thought bubble, which is very unsuspecting. That's something that you remember with cartoons. It's friendly. It's familiar. But then the reality is this, that, that despair, that destruction, that uh, certain death um, is always going on in, in a Black mother's mind, in her head. Um, and that's so great. The thought bubble in the cartoon, I, I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the, um, you know, kind of accessibility mm-hmm. of, of, of the catlet. 
Um, uh, that's and, and sort of a graphic element uh, that, of course, was a part of her work as well. She worked at a, a printmaking workshop in, out of a printmaking workshop in Mexico. So I, I love that observation. Mm. And and because you have two sons, how are they responding to this work specifically? I feel like um, my daughter, bless her soul, <laughs> it was a long time where she would just talk and she would be like, mom, why aren't you saying anything? Because I was taking notes. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be a poem later. Can't wait. <laughs> and then there came a time when she's like, okay, no more poems about me. That's uh-huh. it. So I had to not do it when she was in high school. I think I had to give her a break. And uh-huh. now I graduated college. I'm back on the grind. But my- <laughs> so children. I- yeah, right. They have all these rules. But she is a great reader for me when mm-hmm. I'm writing about her. Because my perspective is obviously, you know, shrouded with, with mother intellect. Um, but there are moments where she, she'll hear something or read something and say, oh yeah, that did happen like this, but also, you know, and gives me just a slight, you know, just changes that, changes that object in the light a little bit for me. Has that happened with you and your sons and this piece of work? Well, um, it's interesting because starting with, um, my memoir, the light of the world eight years ago, when they were much, much younger, um, that book was really, it was, memoir about our lives. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that even though when I wrote it, they were 13 and 14, I had to share it with them. And even to say to them, because it was about their father passing very unexpectedly and about our family life, that if they were uncomfortable with it, that I would not publish it. Mm. Um, And, you know, what, what, what the, the writer part of me, the voracious, you know, greedy writer in me thought like, I won't publish it now, but then time will pass. (laughs) Um, But I did, I, I, but I did also like, seriously, truly, they were children. And so, uh, you know, and what was fascinating was, and they said, we want you to read it to us. And I read the whole book out loud to them, you know, and this was after one day they came home from school and I was, you know, kind of hadn't fixed my face after a hard writing session. I was very emotional. Mm. They said, what's up? And I said, oh, the writing was hard. Why was it hard? Well, you know, I think I didn't get it exactly right. Well, read it to us. And I said, "Um, well, I said, but daddy dies in it. And they said, like, mama, we know daddy died. (laughs) Read the book. (laughs) Read the book. film. (laughs) And and then what was fascinating was the kinds of comments they made Mm. We're, you know, it's when you realize, like, we just, we experience the same thing from different angles. Yes. Sometimes overlapping, sometimes not. Um, but we talked about it. You know, we talked about it. And it was like something that wasn't the book. The book could be let be because something other than the book grew out of that. Yes. In this one, my sons and their friends, I mean, as you know, you know, one of the real, you know, gifts of, of their young adulthood is they've, they've, I, I have more sons now yes. from their friends mm-hmm. um, uh, and a couple of daughters too. Um, and so, you know, having had those young folks at my table, I've been listening and listening and listening and listening and listening and listening. Um, again, along with students who, you know, some of whom I've loved deeply and dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, over many, many years, because I, I didn't want to sort of name this generation and say, you know, this is what I see. 
uh, you all going through without having it be in some way resonant for them. And I think that, look, let me tell you, I mean, I think this generation, I think they're fierce. I think they're ready. Mm. I think they, I think they are pained. Mm -hmm. I think, I think disproportionate numbers of them are dealing with depression or let's use that as a kind of umbrella you know, um, uh, I think that when you try to both find and express the joy that is part of being a free young person, and there's a lot in this book about freedom. Mm-hmm. And I talk about my father, 88 years old, in a section about, I call free black men, mm-hmm. because it was my father who taught me and taught my children what it is to be a free black man. Mm-hmm what it means to be able to say, hell no. What it means to have your money in your pocket. Mm. So that as he would say, you can leave that job, you can leave that man, you can leave. You have your own. Mm -hmm. You have your own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be able to stand up to the lies they tell on us, Mm. you know, and to be, and to be ready. You know, I talk about how when my father, both of my parents, uh, Harlemites, myself born, though displaced, uh, proud Harlemite. And, you know, in, in 1941, when daddy was eight years old, that was his first police encounter wow. in Harlem, USA. Eight years old. Eight years old. And his mother had taught him, you better exercise your mind so you can memorize those badge numbers. Ooh. She said, you politely get yourself out of the situation and get home and you better have that badge number. Mm. And then we will handle this. Mm. Mm. You know, so, so that, you know, growing up with that, those stories and, you know, thank goodness, my, my children have had the opportunity to, to, to grow up, you know, so close to their grandfather, um, you know, to have an example that, that, you know, it doesn't matter what the society calls you. Yeah how it demeans you, that we have always here to our history, we have always stood up. Yes. And so, you know, that's why I turn to the history and the culture and to the stories uh, to be able to show that. And that's my offering to the kids who have given me so much. That's one of the ways I love them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I have one more question before we bring Christina back. I know that we have a, a, a lighten up Q&A. You have <laughs> people who are here learning, thriving. Um, make sure you buy this book wherever you are. Uh, buy the audio book. Who did the audio book? Did you do that one as well? I myself. Yes, Yay! I did. <laughs> I just put out there, you know, I just pretended like I didn't know. <laughs> so if you want to have Elizabeth read to you like her, her sons have, have the gift, then you get that audio book and it, it'll happen. Um, I want to say a couple of things and I just want you to answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, great. Black people dance to <laughs> everything. Wooden spoons on tin cans, everything. <laughs> Black people joy like us and usness. Mm. Black people grow when when the the cement has been poured. Uh. When the earth is stony. Mm. Come on, Stony. I wasn't <laughs> ready for that either. See, poets will get you. Black people love like. Oh, come on now. We just, we just love like the universe. Mm. We love like the universe. Like the universe. I, I, I 
did this run because um, I think it's like page 82 in my PDF, but when you say black people dance to say, I am alive and in my body, I am black alive and looking back at you. When I tell you, I almost threw my computer. I ain't got no warranty on this thing. So I couldn't get <laughs> in my, my body. Whoosh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so good. I mean, I'm ready, I'm ready for the t-shirts. I'm ready. You know, like that's going to be my mantra for this season. Well, and you know that, and that's a, like, that's invoking June, the great June Jordan, yes. um, the great June Jordan from her book, Who Look at Me. Mm. Uh, which is actually a book. Wow. I'm just realizing this for the first time. So who look at me is a a book long poem for young people with African-American art made by June Jordan. This was a book I had as a child. I just realized that this book I made was inspired by that book by June Jordan. In this moment, in this moment, because, you know, and, and, and it ends with, I am black alive and looking back at you. Who mm-hmm. look at me? I am black alive and looking back at you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm but I'm re- I'm remembering now. Thank you. That the, the, the book itself was something that um, I always thought was amazing. And, and, and I like these books. You know, another book that I consciously modeled this on is um, Entisaki Shange's Riding the Moon in Texas. Hmm. Um, you know, a book of hers of word poems where she's responding to amazing, like beautifully reproduced works of art and her words are, are, are weaving through. So they're not very many of them, but they're very, very special books. Mm, I am so, so thankful that it, it jogged your memory. Uh, I had, I know that book, that children's book, I don't have it. So now I have to get my life in order. Yeah. Well, but it's very, it might be out of print. I mean, I, you know, it was a book I had in the sixties. Um, so yeah. Well, that, that might be a, a nice little historical moment that we bring it back. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, are you ready for some questions with Christina? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And okay. then maybe we'll close with a nice little piece from you later. Great. All right. Here I am. Hi. Okay. So um, thank you for this powerful piece. In your New Yorker essay, The Trayvon Generation, you speak of the resonant phrase, Black Lives Matter, as both ancestral in its knowledge and prophetic in its ongoing necessity. With your word choice of prophetic, are you signaling any connection with a larger prophetic tradition? And with ancestral, are you signaling BLM as a larger diasporic formation? I'm wondering how these ancestral and prophetic angles factor into how you are approaching not only BLM, but the Trayvon generation. Wow, what a question. Yeah. And I would put that in the category of, of question of like, well, you just said a thing. <laughs> Actually, I, <laughs> you quoted me where I said a thing and then you said a thing. <laughs> um, so um, I, and, and so but I love this, you know, calling out of um, of the ancestral and the prophetic. And I guess that, you know, what I try to do in the book is I, I don't think so. This is separate from from BLM. Um, I don't think that elders alone show us the way. I don't think that young people alone show us the way. Uh, you know, I think that um, multi-generational and to which I would say the ancestral, uh, you know, and the prophetic looking forward, moving forward are absolutely necessary uh, for there to be progress. 
Um, and one of the things that I um, have found so powering about, about BLM um, is the way in which it is always understood language, culture, symbolism, uh, that that is an important part of making protest visible, actionable, um, that the form it comes in uh, is an incredibly important part of a message reaching as many people as it does. So, you know, this person spoke of, of the diasporic. Um, and I think that, you know, for us to always understand ourselves as being connected to folks all over the globe and to understand, you know, again, I, you know, I quote Gwendolyn Brooks, we occur everywhere. We occur everywhere. And that's why she says she doesn't like African-American because she says it feels euphemistic. It feels polite. It feels, as she says, tight-faced. I don't like tight-faced poets. It feels like catching black back a sneeze. She says, I am black and black forever. I am one of the blacks. We occur everywhere. So I think that's absolutely a part of, um, of the impact of, of Black Lives Matter. Thank you. Um, my son is 21, so he is an age mate of your son's Elizabeth, and we are age mates as well. Would our book be called The Rodney King or Diallo Generation? And what do you see is a key distinction between our 20-year-old's experience, Black Alive and Looking at You, and ours? Love that question. Um, uh, and I had not thought of myself as being part of a generation. When I think about the generations and the Trayvon generation, I go back further to Emmett Till. And I think about, you know, that is certainly a generation uh, who, you know, saw, knew the story. And it was the story of Emmett Till. One of the things that was so important about it is that you have all these, these Black folks from the Great Migration who have moved from the South to the North. Some six million people, I think. I mean, the largest internal movement of people in history, perhaps, uh, or a huge movement of people leaving, you know, many things, including terror in the South, but having their ties to the South. So the whole, you know, motif of, you know, someone in Chicago, someone in Detroit sending their child home for the summer was something that happened very, very, very frequently. And how do you adjust your ways? How do you understand this place where, where you are? The fact that Mamie Till Mobley, Emmett Till's mother, insisted that his body be dredged up out of the river, insisted that his body be brought to Chicago, insisting that his body be in an open casket, she said, because I want the world to see what they did to my child, insisting that Jet Magazine be allowed to take a photograph which then, you know, moved through black communities uh, all over the place. You know, some people say that um, Emmett Till's murder and our knowledge of it was a, 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 can be measured as a starting point of the civil rights movement. I mean, of course, there was movement work happening. But so, so that's a clear generation. Um, I certainly do think for my generation, uh, what was interesting about Rodney King is that if you think about different technologies, we have the photograph in Jet Magazine in 1955. Then in 1993, we have, uh, or the early 1990s, we have not a cell phone camera, but, you know, George Holiday with his video camera, 
here I am doing it like it's 1920. It was a video camera taking a picture so that that's why we know about Rodney King. And that's why people could be called to action. Um, and then moving forward. So that certainly was emblematic, but that was not, I don't think a story where we necessarily felt our vulnerability in the same way that I'm talking about both Emmett Till and the Trayvon generation, when the young folks felt their vulnerability, their proximity to, to that violence to Amadou Diallo. um, You know, I mean, any number of these stories. And again, when you just tell them, they resonate together, but also in their particularity. Uh, you know, I was thinking one story that haunts me is Elijah McClain. Is Elijah McClain. It shouldn't matter that he had a particular dearness, that he had a particular way with language, that he appealed to his tormentors with a language of empathy, but that does make me feel it in a particular way. Um, So back to Amadou Diallo and the personal, um, uh, you know, my late husband was an immigrant from East Africa, Um, uh, you know, always coming back late at, you know, learning, coming from a, a black place, learning what it was to be a black man in the United States, coming back late at night from his many dishwashing jobs, uh, and, and, and being in unsafe circumstances. So for my husband, Amadou Diallo was the story that felt like there before the grace of God. That was me coming home late at night from my dishwashing job, you know, and that that could have been, you know, that there might've been a language issue that he perhaps didn't understand what was said to him, that he showed his keys like, my big son in the elevator now tells me I show my keys so they know I live here, you know, but that's a great question about generations. I'm going to keep thinking about it. I think we should all meditate on kind of, you know, what's, how would we name our generation? I love that. Well, the person who asked it asked me that I please tell you that it's treasure who asked the question. Treasure. (laughs) Hello, treasure Redmond. Oh my goodness. Beautiful. Um, A comment from Elena. You are both articulate, disciplined, well-versed, and seemingly open to a conversation with even a stone-cold racist. So (laughs) are you concerned that the Trayvon generation will only capture your messages as a slogan mantra and justification for violence? So don't get the question. Um, You know, I think... I, I don't quite, perhaps if the person wants to write more. Yeah. In the chat, why, don't don't, you, why don't you elaborate, Elena, because we're not understanding what you're asking completely. Okay, a question from Bonnie. How did you choose the artist and decide how to integrate the artwork with your text? Um, well, so I've always, um, you know, forever and forever um, been engaged with visual artists as, you know, as friends, as colleagues, as, you know, just absolute devotees to their work. 
I've written about um, Black visual arts. I'm very proud that on all of my books, um, all of the covers are works of art by Black artists, different, different ones. So if you line them all up, as I do from time to time, just to look at all of those beautiful artists, um, reproduced really, really well. It's sort of a, a you know, a gallery, a story of, of Black art. So this has been a, a lifelong um, engagement. And I wanted with this book also to learn more um, about um, works of art um, that I didn't necessarily know about. I wanted to cast a very, very wide net. Um, so um, two amazing, amazing, amazing um, young women who I've worked with, um, Josie Hodson and Martha Scott Burton, um, helped me by um, just, I said, go find me. You, you know what I'm writing about. You know what I'm thinking about. We've talked about it. Show me stuff. Show me stuff. Show me stuff. Um, so it was a great moment for me to um, expand and learn. Um, and again, as I said earlier, I wanted it to be, um, I didn't, I wasn't illustrating the book. And I didn't want the art to be in any way subsidiary. Um, I felt like I was bringing exactly as with the poems who were in the book and the, the, the poets that are in the book, I was making raising them to the level of a conversation. Um, and so that's, that's what I've hoped to achieve. A very physical process, too, in the kind of laying out of it. Thank you. Um, so Becky says that she's been opening every class each semester with your New Yorker article. And the students light up with the words, the honesty, and the love. So thank you. Um, someone is pointing out, do either of you know the visual artist Charles Edward Williams or any of his works? His American dream is outstanding. I really think it could be a symbol icon of Black Lives Matter. Charles Edward Williams. I do not know his work. Do you, Mahogany? I will look it up. Thank you for that. Great. Um, and then I would like you to ask you if you would read one more, um, one more from the book, one more time. Yes, I would be happy to. Artists make radical solutions all day long. Soup from a stone, beauty from thin air. We see and try and discard and see again. We vision, we discard, we invent, we do it in the dark, we bring it into community. Artists continue to generate in a dangerous world that is nonetheless overflowing with life force and power. Creativity, making, and imagining animate Black self-determination with that which only culture can provide. And people make movements and history with the force of creativity. The truly heroic drama of Black struggle is seen in the vivid figurative language of visionary leadership the tableau of fierce and proud resistance, the blazing beauty of people who survive indignities that might seem unbearable, the style and innovation with which Black people keep on stepping, offering countless examples to remind us of what has been overcome, as well as to spark possibility for envisioning the new. Sometimes the answers are not literal. Sometimes they take the form of human touch, of the love or encouragement that is transmitted in communities or of the abstract space of possibility that is breath, carved out inside of us when we literally breathe to live and breathe to speak the truth. 
Artists are the visionaries who can help us imagine the unseen possibility when we are faced with so much violence in what I fervently wish are the dying embers of an era of violent white supremacism, incivility, and hatred. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Mahogany Brown, for all the soul richness you bring to everything you do. Thank you for this work. Um, You said it best. There is no liberation in the by and by. I really and truly appreciate you bringing together so many different facets of our Black lives, not just the loss of our lives, but our dignity, um, our memory, and um, our propensity for love. So thank you for that. I'm excited to dive back in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you both. We love this book. We're so proud to have it on our shelves. We can't wait to spread the word to everyone that, that comes in, show it off. It's gorgeous. Thank you so much. Thank you to Miami Book Fair, all our bookstore partners as well. It's just been lovely, a lovely evening. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you all for coming too. Thank you. This virtual event was presented on April 4th by Books and Books, the Miami Book Fair, and other independent bookstores around the country. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.